So, a week ago Saturday, I was at uh, Mount St. Mary's, Doheny campus, and we were having an interfaith um, celebration of sorts, National Prayer Day 2, and we had a variety of religious speakers, and we were speaking about silence in our tradition. Now, I don't know if you can pick up on the irony about speaking about silence, but we all had a lot to say. And it got me to thinking about silence in Buddhism, because it really is important. And when the Buddha was asked the most important questions, like, why are we here? How did it start? He always answered in silence. Uh, and one would say, well, he really didn't know what the answers were, or he knew what the answers were, and we wouldn't understand, or he felt they weren't that important, and it would just distract us from the, the suffering and the end of suffering, which was his teachings. So, so I thought about my own practice, and I thought about finding my silence, and initially, it wasn't about silence at all. It was about finding my stillness. Now, stillness is a very important aspect in meditation. And for the last half hour, we were sitting relatively still. We weren't running away from the pain, and we weren't running towards the pleasure and we weren't scratching or itching or moving our legs. We were simply just sitting in stillness. When I started to meditate, it was really difficult to find that stillness because it wasn't something I had given value to before. And so I would sit quietly on the floor and I would toss and turn and move and stretch and to try to run away from all those uncomfortable feelings in my body, which under normal circumstances I wasn't aware of because I was running away from them and doing things and distracting myself from the physical pain that was always present, it seemed. And, and when I got to a place of almost being still my body and my mind sort of formed a conspiracy against me and said, you know what, this, this painful feeling reminds me of something that happened 12 years ago. It had the same characteristics, so I'm going to let you think about it for the next half hour. And it was like deep tissue massage or rolfing, it was like I'm releasing all these issues and memories that haven't been resolved for years, all coming up in a half hour. And then the gong would ring and people would say, well, how was it? And I would go, it was hell. <laughs> and, and at the time, I didn't realize that this was the purification process kicking in. This was, I was starting now to purify myself emotionally. And I was getting ready for the next part. 
The next part was even more difficult. So after the first year of rolfing myself, as I sat quietly in meditation, I then understood how clever the mind is, that it would take me away from the unpleasant situation of having to sit quietly on the floor for a half hour. And it would create a whole new reality for me. And I've shared this story before, but you may have forgotten, so I'll share it again. That at one time on Westwood Boulevard, there was Rhino Records, which was just a wonderful place to go. Used and new CDs at half price with bins full. And people who had nothing else to do would just end up spending hours at Rhino Records. So there I was, sitting on the floor, experiencing great pain and suffering in my body, and my mind kicked in and would said to me, you know what, after this is all over, and you've, <laughs> and you've paid the price, wouldn't it be nice to go to Rhino Records and look through all those bins and feel so happy and joyful that you were no longer sitting quietly suffering? And for weeks after meditation, I would get up and I would drive to Rhino Records. And I was so happy. And I'd always come out with three or four CDs. And, and after a while, I, I realized how expensive meditation was. <laughs> that I had to have a budget now. I could only spend this much at Rhino Records. But it took me out of the present moment of my physical suffering and gave me a future scenario that was really pleasant. And, and that worked for about a year or so. And then it was harder to come up with scenarios that would deal with the issue of having a physical body that could not rest in the stillness. Well, thankfully, if you do it long enough, whatever it is, it just becomes sort of a habit pattern, and it becomes the way you do it. So I could sit after two years relatively pain-free. I had trained my body to sit quietly and enjoy the stillness. But now the problem with the physical stillness is it turns up the volume of your thoughts that they go to 11, and they scream at you. <laughs> and you've never had so much clarity in your thinking as you rest in physical stillness. At least that was my experience. So I said, well, after two years, I sort of figured out the stillness stuff, but the silence stuff, man, will that ever come? I can remember back in the 1980s, we meditators at IBMC decided to pool our funds and rent Samadhi Inc. Now Samadhi Inc. was a business in Beverly Hills and they had sensory deprivation tanks. And if you remember the movie with William Hurt, Altered States, you realize how much fun he had in his <laughs> sensory deprivation tank. Do you remember that movie? It was a long time ago. Well, what he did is he would take LSD and he would go into his sensory deprivation tank. 
which is very similar to John Lilly in the book, The Center of the Cyclone. It may still be available if you're interested. He took LSD and went into a sensory deprivation tank and had an amazing internal experience. But if you're watching a movie, looking at an internal experience is rather boring because you're on the outside looking in. So what they did in the movie is they morphed him into sort of a Neanderthal kind of guy who would crawl out of the sensory deprivation tank and cause havoc in Boston and then would crawl back in and manifest as he, as he was before he took the LSD. And, and the end of the movie was rather um, predictable and, and, and it didn't satisfy my needs. At the end of the movie... He was morphing into not even a Neanderthal, but this sort of primordial glob, crying out. And his girlfriend came in and held him. And her love saved him. And I'm thinking, you couldn't end it in a better way. But that was just me. So having all these thoughts and ideas, as we went to Samadhi Inc., we had rented it for the whole night. They closed at 6, and we showed up at 7. And a group of us were going to meditate and sensory deprive ourselves all night long. (laughs) Now, there were more of us than tanks. So the ones who weren't in the tank would sit in meditation, and then the ones in the tank would be there for an hour, and then we'd change places. But we also brought with us a buffet, and so we would eat all night long in between our meditation practice. Now, I thought this was the perfect way to experience silence. That I would be in a container that's light-proof and soundproof with water heated to the external temperature of my body, and it had salt so I would float. I would see nothing, I would hear nothing, I would feel nothing. But how wrong I was. (laughs) Because in the tank, you hear yourself breathing. You can almost hear your heart beating. There is no silence in the world. Even if you go to Vermont, those squirrels and birds, they're making noise all the time. Oftentimes, in the sensory deprivation tank, because there wasn't an external stimulus, the mind would hallucinate. And they had a book of people who wrote down the hallucinations they got in the tank. I was really excited at the idea of hallucinating in a tank and then having a little buffet (laughs) and sitting quietly for an hour. But no such luck. That voice in my head became even more pronounced. And, And I just thought about stuff and thought about stuff. And I didn't find the silence. But the next morning was a fantastic experience because we left and I looked at a tree and it just glimmered. It shined in the sunlight. And I went, whoa. It was almost as if I had washed my, my sense doors clean and I was seeing it again for the first time. It took a really long time to wash them, but it was an interesting experience that sticks with me even today.
So I said to myself, well, how am I going to get rid of the noise? And I started reading about different aspects of Buddhist meditation. And they have something called samatha meditation, which is deep states of concentration, where one thing becomes everything. So I said, I think I'm going to go for that and see if I can find my silence. So I sat down and had a method that I had gleaned from the books I had been reading. I couldn't find a teacher. Nobody was teaching this stuff. You know, they were teaching vipassana. And, but this stuff is sort of like mystical, and you can, you can get lost in your thoughts and consciousness, and, and so you've got to be really careful. And Sometimes you can be depressed for days, if not weeks, and sometimes you can turn on an energy button, and the energy doesn't go away for months, and you can't sleep, and you're always agitated. And so there's like a lot of pitfalls in this kind of meditation, but what it does do is it does take you to these altered states of consciousness, unlike Vipassana, which sort of takes you to the reality of your present moment. So I prepared myself, and, and every week I would do my samatha meditation, and I used thought, and I used the thought of breathing as a reference point. Now, what would be the thought of breathing? In my case, it was keeping track of my breath with counting. So counting became my thoughts as I watched my breath, and it allowed me to connect my mind to the sensation of breath. So I would count from 1 to 10, 10 to 1, 1 to 10, 10 to 1. And I would do this week after week, month after month. And, and each time was the first time, and sometimes I could make it to 10, and sometimes I'd make it to 7 or 8 before thought came up that distracted me enough to lose my place in counting, and I'd have to go back to one, and then I'd go up to ten, I'd come back down to one, and I'd go up and down, up and down, up and down. And I had some fantastic experiences. I mean, lights and sounds and energy flows and just amazing stuff. And for a while, about a year, I was hooked on all that stuff. It was like my drug of choice. And it was free, and nobody knew I was doing it, and I was just in this internal reality and it made me look at the world in a different way. And I really liked that. It was like taking a vacation without going anywhere other than the inside of your consciousness. The silence eventually came. And the, and, and the silence came because that little object of meditation, that little sensation of breath, started out like a pinpoint on the horizon. But as I focused, and as I focused, and as I focused, this pinpoint became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and then ultimately all-consuming. That the only thing that existed while I was meditating was simply the sensation of breath once I had let the thought of breathing, the counting, go. So now all the concepts necessary to be aware of breath had fallen aside, and it was simply the sensation of breath that became my entire reality for a half hour. When one is that deep in their breath, you can no longer see anything, or hear anything, or taste anything, or smell anything, or feel anything. You are absorbed by the object of meditation. And it is wonderful 
because you no longer have this body and you no longer have a self. So you've gotten rid of two of the biggest burdens. And you're just sitting there in a blissful state of the present moment experience of your breath. A sensation. And it's almost like floating sometimes because your body image, that body map we have inside our heads, falls away. And you no longer know where your body ends and the world begins. Which is really nice, as long as you don't have to drive a car. And as far as discernment and judgment, this is like a really important distinction I've come to understand. A few months ago, somebody said, what do you think is the difference between judgment and discernment? Well, to be honest with you, I'd never given it too much thought, you know? And, and I thought it was sort of a dumb thing to ask, and I came up with a dumb answer because I had nothing else to give. But then, which normally happens after I think something is dumb, it becomes really important. And I started to reflect and read what other people had to say about judgment and discernment. And there is such a difference, and it is so important. So, this is what I've come to understand, and this is what meditation allows us to do. It allows us to get out of our judgment and simply have a discernment. Okay, so judgment, I've come to understand, is an emotional reaction. It's, it's the way you look at stuff. It's the way you know stuff should be. Now, two days ago, at the end of our street, we have a sign, and it's right turn only. And, a, and on the other side of the intersection is another sign that says right turn only. So I'm going to cross the street... And I notice there's a woman in a car who's not going to turn right like she legally is wanted, asked to do. She's going to turn left. And I thought to myself, I wonder, with all these hit and runs, what she's going to do if I step out in the street and she does a left turn. Will she give me the right of way being a pedestrian crossing at the intersection? Will she hit me? Will it be my last day on earth? Well, I left myself enough room to jump back on the sidewalk in case she came right at me. So I step out, and she turns left, and our eyes meet. And I put both hands up and go, No! (laughs) And she looks at me and waves. (laughs) And continues. And I thought, so this is why we have so many hit and runs in Los Angeles. Nobody cares anymore. And I mumbled all the way to Chipotle about this woman (laughs) turning left in front of me. My judgments ran rapid. I just couldn't stop my mind from thinking of all the worst case scenarios that could have happened on that intersection that day with me. So judgment is personal. It's important to all of us because we all need to have good judgment. 
There was a, a video on the news a few months ago of somebody who was trying to escape the police chase. And they were right behind him. And he stopped on this bridge over this river, and he got out of the car, and he jumped off the bridge into the river, and it was like 60 feet, and he broke something, and they fished him out, they took him to the hospital. And I'm thinking, not good judgment. That judgment was really important at that time, and he lacked it. He might have had discernment, though. So discernment, what is discernment? Discernment is seeing the difference. That's it. Discernment is seeing the difference. Now, when I took a shower today, before I came over here, we have a, a, a little spider that lives in our shower. And it's a good little spider, and it kills the mosquitoes. And so we just leave him there. And he watches us shower and doesn't really care. When you open up the curtain, he notices it. And when you close the curtain, he notices it, because the light changes. So he sees the difference. Does he know what light is? Probably not. Does he care? Probably not. Probably has very little judgment at all in what he does. But he does have discernment, which allows him to live and grow. And, and maybe that's what this whole practice of finding the silence and finding the stillness is all about. is simply coming to the present moment experience and having discernment. What's changing? Well, we'd have to say everything, all the time, you know? And because we have judgment, we use labels, and we give it value, and we have attraction and aversion, and we have all the stuff that goes with recognizing and naming and having an opinion about it. But sometimes, have you ever noticed after meditation, you just sort of look around and all you see is just the difference between people or chairs or light or curtains, but they lack anything else. And there's that certain calm and equanimity that seems to be the basis or the root for that discernment. That you no longer have to give it a value. It's, it's no longer important or not important. You simply recognize what's around you. And then, with enough time, judgment comes back, and it's either beautiful or not, it's either useful or not, it's either expensive or not, all that stuff. And then the drama starts again. And we have the story of our life, and we're victims or victors. And, and then we die to do it all over again, if you're a Buddhist. And on it goes. And so what's important? What has value? What's the meaning of life? I'm often asked that by people, the meaning of life, and I have to say I have a great answer. It's just about suffering and the end of suffering. It's so easy if you're a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be deep or heavy or philosophical. It can be. And many people much wiser and smarter than I have written books about the meaning of life. But it could be simply just sitting 
getting our choice back, our choice not to choose, not to have to make that decision right now, not to have to critique the world in your own very special way and choose good or bad, but maybe just discern the moment. Maybe that's enough sometimes in our life. So when I talked about stillness, I had 20 minutes. When I talked about silence and stillness, I didn't have a whole lot of time, so I talked about different meditation techniques and and how to make the mind still and get to that place between the thoughts after the old thought has died and before the new thought begins. There's that place of silence, that place of peace. And it's really hard to see until you slow the whole process down, and meditation allows us to slow the process down and see that space and take refuge in there for a while But our our mind won't leave us alone. It needs to think. That's its job. And it's rather entertaining. Last night I was thinking about San Francisco. And I'm thinking, the only reason I'm thinking about San Francisco is because I saw an inning of the World Series, maybe. And now my mind is generating a story about San Francisco and me being there for some reason. So my mind likes to keep active. It likes to give me something to think about. It likes to make it exciting if it's boring. It likes to make it boring if it's exciting. It's always never satisfied with what's going on right now. That's why it has past and future. Those are the building blocks of my conscious life. But in the moment after meditation, when past and future have collapsed into the present... And discernment rather than judgment is available to me. A certain peace, a certain tranquility fills the room. And it's so pleasant. So people say, how can you meditate for 30 years? How can you not meditate for 30 years? Is what I say. So I'm going to stop there. Because uh, I could go on, I have many stories, but I like to get feedback, or if anybody has a question or comment or a judgment about what I've said, <laughs> I would love to hear it. What do you think? Okay, silence. I like it. It's good. Yes? Come back to it. Would no, no, I'm saying in three years I've never I've never made it to ten. Okay. Let alone ten, nine, back to one. After all those years of school. Yeah, all those years of school. So. So what's the point? Just in 
continue doing doing it. I mean, I love doing it because I know it helps me because I am thriving to get more focused and more concentrated. Mm -hmm. But I've never seen true progress. Yeah, I think it's really difficult, this, this Samatha meditation. If you go to like a Goenka retreat or a Vipassana retreat, oftentimes the first day or two is concentration, right. which would be Samatha, to get you ready for the Vipassana. But it doesn't get me ready at all. I think it's harder for me. Well, it, it can be if we're used to multitasking, and most people seem to do that more often than not. You know, uh, so why is it there in the first place? Well, if, in the story of the Buddha, which is a great story, uh, when he went and found his first teachers, they taught him Samatha meditation. And, and Samatha meditation, he found, relieved the suffering while you were doing it. So when you're deeply involved in your object of meditation, and all the other stuff sort of falls away, you don't suffer. Because yourself... The consciousness has been anesthetized, if you will. It's not killed, it doesn't go away, but it's been anesthetized. And so there you sit with tranquility and peace, observing breath, and at some point you let go of the counting and you just have that sensation, and it's a wonderful place to be. So he did that, and there were 40 different ways to achieve that, and he talked about them, uh, and, uh, or some of them. They've been collected in a book called the Vasudhi Magga, The Path of Purification. It has all 40 kinds of Buddhist meditation for tranquility. Now, he came to the conclusion that that gave him temporary release from suffering, but not permanent release from suffering. And that is when he rediscovered Vipassana meditation, as the story goes. And the reason the word rediscovered is important is because there were 20 seven Buddhas before him on earth. He's the 28th Buddha on earth. So they had all practiced Vipassana, they had all achieved Nirvana, and now, after years of practice with Samatha, Siddhartha rediscovers Vipassana, achieves Nirvana, realizes Nirvana, and becomes the Buddha. I found myself, and, and this is going to sound off, strange perhaps, that, that Vipassana meditation agitated me. And I was agitated already. That's why I thought I'd try meditation. And it made it worse rather than better. I became very judgmental. I had clear comprehension of all the jerks in the world. <laughs> and, and I didn't want to be there. I didn't, that's not the place I wanted to go. you know. And, and so... That's when I sort of rediscovered or discovered or sort of focused on Samatha meditation because it brought me to a place of tranquility and peace, which Vipassana never did. Now, there's a book written by Bhante Gunaratana that is his PhD thesis on Samatha meditation, and he talks about how Samatha meditation be can become your object of Vipassana. And, and, and give you release, permanent release from suffering. It's a fascinating read. I was, I was surprised that he had written that, and I found it interesting. So, so now I'm, I'm getting really good at this, you know, samatha meditation. I'm having experiences. I'm able to block everything out. I'm able to have this sort of cocoon of samadhi around me, like a prophylactic for the mind, you know. And I could go into various situations and not be agitated 
uh, or disgusted. It was sort of cool. But, but because there was this separation, it, it didn't allow me to fully engage in my life in the way I wanted to. It kept me a little bit distant from people and things and activities. But the distance created uh, joy and happiness. So I lived with it for a while. Now, 10 years into this whole thing, I say, well, okay, now I've, I did Vipassana for a little bit. I've done Samatha. You know, that's really good, but it takes a lot of energy, and there's always sort of this afterburn. It just, you just sort of feel exhausted, almost like a hangover. That it, it's really tough because you, you spend so much energy getting to this place of peace and tranquility. I said to myself, there must be a better way. And then I'm, I'm reading a book, uh, and in this book, uh, they talk about shikantaza. Now, shikantaza is the Japanese word for just sitting. It's a, it's a technique where you just sit. You know, you're just idle. Nothing happens. You don't go anywhere. You don't attain anything. You just sit like a piece of glass. Everything sort of goes through you. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go for the shikantaza stuff because this looks really good. All you got to do is just sit. You don't have to exert any energy to alter your consciousness and have these rarefied states of mind. You, you don't have to be clear and concise in, like you are in Vipassana. You just sort of sit. And I didn't realize how hard it was just to sit because there's all sorts of distractions and you just attach and, and have aversion to all sorts of stuff as you're just sitting. So in Koreatown, as we all know, there's plenty of helicopters and sirens all day, all night. And there you go. And so I'm just sitting, and all of a sudden, the helicopter. Well, if I am just sitting, the only thing that should be happening is my eardrum is vibrating. But what happens now is this image of the helicopter arises, because I've seen so many helicopters, I can tell you exactly what it looks like and how it's painted. And now the drama, the story of what the helicopter is chasing and who's going to get caught takes me over. So rather than just sitting, I'm a screenwriter. And I have this wonderful story that's arising naturally. And I'm going, whoa, that's not just sitting. So I've got to let that go. So the first thing I have to do is become aware that it's there and what I'm doing. And then I have to say, okay, let it go. And then you let it go. And then something else happens and you let it go and let it go. So just sitting turns out to be just letting go. Moment after moment after moment. And as soon as it starts to rise, you let it go. Sometimes it makes it through all your defenses and arises and forms something. And other times you get it just before. And sometimes it's just your eardrum vibrating, which is really good. But then you say, hey, that's really good. And then you take credit for it. And then (laughs) it doesn't work either. So now I just sit. I, I don't focus, I don't think I'm going to learn anything, I don't think I'm not going to learn anything, and I just sit, and then I keep track of what time, and I gong, and then, then, then I have a cup of tea or coffee or whatever I feel like, and I go on to the next thing and the next thing. So how does that work in life then? If you're not going to you know, have this cocoon of samadhi or have this laser-like clarity from vipassana, 
Well, you just sort of go into all these different situations and scenarios and you practice letting go. You know, your natural intention or your natural inclination is to go after the good and away from the bad. Which is what amazes me about firemen and policemen is they go into it. They don't go away from it. So I'm in these situations and the woman that tried to kill me in the street but waved (laughs) first... So normally that might have taken a couple days to get past. You know, after my little lunch at Chipotle, it was gone. She was gone, the incident was gone, and now I was digesting. It was wonderful. So I was in that present moment experience. And, and what I find with just sitting is it helps me let go a lot quicker. And sometimes the process happens all by itself, and I don't have to be involved. So that's how my practice has, has changed over the years. And, and then, you know, are you enlightened? No. Have you achieved nirvana? No. You know, but I can let go a little bit faster now. <laughs> okay. Doesn't impress very many people. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah. Don't go after. Don't avoid. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of relaxing the mind into the moment. And having more discernment and less judgment. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Judgment. Because I, I, I do have this justice thing, I guess, that goes on with me. It's not gonna. You're not gonna get away with it. I just. It took me a while to realize they are trying to get away from me. So, so, and here I have my 14 year old in the car, and I have to think quickly. And it was this it, visceral response is happening too. So that you know this fight or flight. So I just was kind of observing it, and uh, it took a long time for me to get this out of my body. I think I'm still. Sounds like it. Did you get the license plate number? You did. Fantastic. Well, I think what was running through your head was justice, that you would not be denied. And if you had to travel to San Diego to get that license plate number, it might have been on your agenda. Okay. Um, A Buddhist might say, let karma, let karma be the final prosecutor, judgment. Let karma take care of it for you and go on to the next thing. I'm glad you did that because maybe there'll be one less person driving who's going to run away and not take responsibility. But sometimes you can't do that and, and you have to let them go. 
because you realize it, it could turn out to be worse for you rather than better if you finally catch them. <laughs> and then what do you do with them, you know? It, it is fascinating, but, but it, the justice thing is such a big deal. And, and Buddhism has no justice, you see. And that can be a while to really appreciate that. That in the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's a lot of justice. And there's a definite lawgiver who decides right and wrong. And, and in Buddhism, we have karma, we have the cause and consequence, and ultimately the consequence will happen, but it might take a couple lifetimes. So you won't have the satisfaction, because you'll be dead. But karma will be working its magic way into the future, and that person in their third rebirth after the incident will come back as a dog with three legs. <laughs> and, and if you had been around and saw the cause and consequence until that happened, you may take, you may be happy about that. But see, we don't really want to be happy about that because that doesn't help anything. So it's fascinating. Yeah. And now, how long is it going to take you to let go? That's the deal, because it's going to be there like forever. So you don't ever forget anything. We're like elephants. We don't forget anything. So, so what you need to do, in a way, is to create a new relationship with it. It's like having an uncle you hate to see. And every six months they come to visit. And it makes you angry and gives you sort of a tense, cynical view of the world and him. And, and then gradually, with enough experiences of him being in your presence, you start to accept him exactly the way he is and realize he's a jerk, but he's supposed to be that way. And I can't change him. And now as your relationship evolves with him and he comes and knocks on the door, you're happy to see him. And you can probably do the same thing with this incident. You're going to be angry and, and hateful, and then, and then it's just things that happen, and then, you know, I'm glad nobody was hurt, and then the, the whole scenario comes up again two years from now, and you smile that you went after his license plate. And, and, and now it's okay. You can't get rid of it, but you can change the way you look at it. And, and so I use that often, realizing that... Um, uh, until I get old enough to forget everything, I'm going to have to <laughs> deal with this stuff. You know. Well, you want to be an example to him. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. And 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 so it's it's good to, that you did it. It's good you were example. It's good nobody got hurt. And a lesson was learned by the 14-year-old, perhaps. You know, take responsibility. There's an accountability stuff with all that happens in our life and blah, 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 blah. And if not, somebody's mother will be chasing you. <laughs> so that'll be good. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, I, just, I want to follow up on something you just said that I thought was so interesting is that um, about justice and judgment, that we're not happy about um, how did you put it that that the justice doesn't doesn't make us happy? Yeah. But then I and I want to further that question a little bit. Is that how is it that Buddhists are among the most politically active people on the planet? Yeah. 
Because they're human first and Buddhist second. It's, it's the human condition. We have to live together. You know, uh, we are conditional. Uh, we are community animals. We don't, once in a while, somebody ends up in a cave all alone, but there's a whole group of people feeding them. So, you know, um, it's, it's like, okay, so, so how do we get along with each other? And, and justice was a way that we did that. There the were laws to follow, and if we follow the laws, uh, then we can live in harmony. And if you break the laws, then there's justice to allow you to see the error of your ways. So you can go back into community with a more skillful level of speech and action. And prisons were set up initially to be a place to reflect on what you did wrong. And they had a, a Bible on the bed, and they'd stick you in that cell. And all you had to read is the Bible. you read the Bible, you'd learn, you'd have an epiphany about your way, and you'd go out and be a productive member of community again. Well, that's wonderful if that seems to be the case. But... Now you see, you know, like the, somebody get hit and run and the, and the family's pleading, turn yourself in, it's the right thing to do. So they turn themselves in and then, then they, you know, uh, then they're really happy that that, that that occurred and it sort of like resolves the issue and justice has been served and they can go on to the next thing. Or somebody is put to death at a prison and then the family and is there, and they feel better now that the fellow is dead than alive, and justice has been served. And can we get to that place in our own personal practice where we don't have to feel good about the person being killed or good about the person getting 12 years in prison? Can we just have sort of balance and equanimity about that? Uh, it, it's really difficult because there is something about wanting it to be the right way. It should always be this way. And son of a gun, if, if it's not, we're going to make it so. Even if it means going into another country and killing 10 million people, we are going to be righteous about it. Right being the, the working model. So it, it, I catch myself having judgments and not discernment when the stories... Uh, on the news come up, especially Ebola, you know, like we, three people have Ebola, one person died. 220 million people are afraid now. Somebody sneezed on a bus downtown. They stopped the bus, they got everybody out, they marched them to the hospital, took their temperatures, you know. Really? Is, it that, is that what we're doing now? And the more fear we have in our community, the easier it is to direct us, the easier it is to control us. So to have the courage necessary to live in this uncomfortable world where at any moment somebody or something can kill you and yet you make it through the day time and time again, you, you just see the injustice in the world. You see the, the poverty and, and, and you go, how can that be? And the people who are starving and people who are sick and don't have health care, how can that be? There needs to be more justice. But as I look at the world, it's sort of always been that way. And, and the only thing that wants it differently is this little self-ego that keeps arising that has been taught or learned or experienced other ways of doing things, wishing it could be that way. And then I'm exhausted and I go to bed. But it's just like, when will it ever be utopia? It will never be utopia. I think that's the reason a lot of people are waiting for the world to end. 
because it'll be just wonderful. <laughs> Some will be left behind and others will be in heaven and fantastic, you know. Then we finally have the kind of world we want. Well, the world will have the kind of world it wants when the humans finally get a chance to leave and never come back. It's going to be lush and tropical and there'll be plenty to eat and, and some other creature will come and mess it up again. It, that's how life is. So when I, when I, I was so happy to read about justice and karma and so happy that I didn't have to find justice in, in all the inequality in the world, that I could, I could come to a place of acceptance with some people are skillful and some people aren't. Some people cause more suffering, some people cause less suffering. But at the end of the game, we all go back in the same box. You know? A hundred years from now, we're all going to be dead. Seven billion of us are going to be dead. And some of us sooner. Some of us later. What does it all mean? Anything you want, I suppose. But living in harmony is such a wonderful ideal and, and rarely achieved, even in monastic settings. I was on a monastic retreat, and these two monastics were having a dispute of some kind, and one pushed the other one. <laughs> And I'm thinking, these guys are working full-time on being better human beings. <laughs> and they still disagree. And they still cause each other suffering and pain sometimes. Will it ever end? Only in nirvana. You know, that's it. At least we have a way out. There's like two people there right now, and the seven billion. But we got a way out. So it's, it's bending, it's... it's resigning yourself, it's surrendering, it's also being proactive and engaged at exactly the same time, which sounds paradoxical. But every spiritual path I've ever read about, there's so much paradox in each one. You know, it's the best path, it's no path. You go, what are they talking about? They're always talking about what the finger is pointing at, not the finger. So the religion or philosophy is the finger pointing. And we get so consumed with the finger, we never see what it's pointing at. Until we finally sit down and find stillness and silence. Then we see for the first time. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Hideki. Well, I say, first of all, the Buddhists kill all the time, every day. Spiders, ants, cockroaches, mosquitoes, even humans. Sometimes you need to kill. And, and it's, it's, it's terrible that we can't live in a world without killing. But this world is set up to birth and death as the book ends. And, and so if it's born, it's going to die. And sometimes Buddhists kill because of political reasons. Sometimes Buddhists kill because of justice. 
Sometimes Buddhists kill just because it's the easy way out. The problem is solved in an instant. Yeah, okay, so, so this is the big deal now. So, okay, so, so you've been practicing your Buddhism, and, and now you're on the street, and there's one guy that's going to kill ten people. And you say to yourself, if I kill that one guy, ten people will live. Okay, so what should I do? And then you look at the first precept, and the first precept is not to kill. And then you say, but how much is life worth? And it's priceless. And then you go through all the scenarios of why it's good to kill that person, and then you look at the first precept again. And what the first precept reminds you of is even if you kill the one guy and it's the right thing to do, there will always be a karmic consequence. Karma will not let you off. I know there's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing. There's some kinds of justice where it seems to even out but Buddhism says, even if you have the best reason to kill, there's going to be a negative karmic consequence to that action because it's always wrong to kill. So the next time you see a hundred ants on your sink, you know, and you start to kill them, think about the karmic consequence. Now, I don't know what that means. It could mean tomorrow you'll have a thousand ants. <laughs> it could mean a lot of things. Or it could mean that you have so much merit, because you practice kindness and generosity your whole life, that it absorbs the <laughs> negative karmic consequences of killing those ants, and you'll feel nothing. It'll be like nothing ever happened. But there's always, there's always a price to pay, even if you're right, even, it's, even, even if it's the correct thing to do. A story, a true story, was the, one of the first classes I took studying the Vasudhi Maga was at Dharma Vijaya, Buddhist Vihara, with Dr. Havanpola Ratnasara. How about that? Said that all in one sentence. <laughs> and we were sitting there, and this fellow had just been married less than a year. And he's been reading Buddhism, and he's get this has this idealistic view of not killing. And he says, you know, after taking this class and reading what Buddhism says about killing, I've decided that if somebody breaks into my house and wants to kill my wife, I will let them because it's her karma. So the teacher just chuckled. And, and he said, well, he said, when you got married, that vow of marriage is more important than keeping the first precept. So you'd better protect your wife <laughs> if you're a Buddhist or not. And I thought... That's how we get. We get into these places of idealism, and, and we start to look at the world as black and white and right and wrong, and, and it's never that way, and we never have enough information to make the perfect choice, because it's always changing in the very next moment. So we just do the best we can. But don't let your wife die. <laughs> Keep her alive. <laughs> Even if you have to kill but in killing the, the person who broke into your house, there'll still be a karmic consequence, even if you did the right thing. So we have to accept it. There's an accountability aspect to this stuff, which a lot of people don't want, because they're doing the right thing. Is that helpful, in a way? Okay. Go back and tell that guy. That's right. Well, we've come to the end. 
thank you all for showing up today. I'm always surprised when people show up. And uh, thank you. And let's do a quick loving kindness meditation. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. By the power of truth found in the Buddha Dharma, may all misfortunes due to stars, demons, harmful spirits, and ominous planets be prevented and destroyed. With the power of all the fully awakened Buddhas, may those of us sitting here today be secure and protected in every way.